So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. You may be seated. So replanting, 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 replanting. Have you heard enough of it yet? Does it start to sound like one of those words you've heard too many times and you're starting to forget what it means, you know what I'm saying? Um, We keep talking about replanting. And I know a lot of us have struggled to really understand what that means. I've been asked questions from, hey, are we keeping Sunday school? To are we selling the building and moving locations, right? What in the world does replanting mean? And I've tried to, to give you the analogy of literally a root, a plant that's in the ground, And it is not doing well, it is in decline, so we get it out of the ground and we find a new sunny spot for it, right? Um, And we give it new soil and new water and uh, all the good things that it needs to grow and have life. So what that means is we're trying to determine the soil, the sunlight, the water, our values, our mission, our strategy, our systems of discipleship. Are they working? Is our church flourishing as a result of our systems that are in place? If these things are not strong and nutritious and life-giving for the plant, the plant will not live. Our plant was in decline. So we made the right decision, I think, to give our plant new life, to begin changing. And part of that change is not only our values and how we pursue discipleship together, but also how we operate, how we make decisions, how we express authority, how we govern ourselves as the body of Christ. It may not be your favorite topic on a Sunday morning, uh, but nonetheless, it is an important one. And it's more important than ever that we get this right. We've discussed prayer. We've discussed fellowship. We've discussed evangelism, discipleship, adapting to change. And we've talked about all these things in pretty good detail from God's Word. But just as important as all of these pursuits are, is also a right biblical understanding of what the church is and what the church is made of. Um, James Kirkland wrote a wonderful book, and I'm kind of uh, stealing his title. It's called Elders, Deacons, and Saints. Oh my. Uh, And in that book, uh, he, he writes this quote, Is my church producing sufficient fruit? That of new believers being baptized and becoming engaged in God's word and learning to be obedient disciples of Christ who are serious about helping uh, others become disciples too. So that I can have confidence to believe we are successful at accomplishing the task of ministry laid out in Ephesians 4. That's a question. Is that happening among us? Here's what he says. If your answer is no... You should examine your current form of church government. 
Didn't see that one coming, did you? This is a bigger deal than we think it is. The way we operate matters to God. And it ought to matter to us. And what I think is pretty amazing about the Scriptures is that it gives us a pretty straightforward picture of what church government ought to look like. The church is not a man-made institution. So that means we don't have to look for man-made solutions, right? God is going to give us what we need to operate. The church is not a democracy. The church is not a Freemasons club where people come and become members and vote on things. The church is a biblical structure that is not found anywhere else on earth, not found in Robert's Rules of Order, not found in the American government or any other government, not found in Catholicism, not found in any denominational gathering or association. If we are applying a derivative of cultural governments to God's house, it will have a major impact on our ability to make disciples. Because at the end of the day, this is not just a biblical ignorance issue. This is a biblical disobedience issue. And once I preach these things to you over the next three weeks, you will be held accountable to God by what you do with the knowledge and what you do with the information of what God says in His Word. And you'll be responsible to bring this to life in the local church. I typically don't like analogies for the church because Jesus already gave us the perfect one, right? We're the body And He is the head. We grow up into the head together. He is the unifying source of life for the church. And so we operate as different organs, useful for the mission that He has us on. But uh, maybe you've heard of the school bus analogy. The pastor sits in the driver's seat. Everyone else rides along in the school bus. And they take pictures out the window. And most of the time they're kind of criticizing which roads the pastor decides to go down, right? Uh, But for the most part, they follow and they have a good old time. Um, I don't like that analogy, (laughs) obviously, but uh, I found another analogy that is a little better. And it's kind of long, but I think it's worth reading. It's also from James Kirkland in that same book. He says, Consider instead a beautiful and fully rigged sailing ship as an analogy for a local congregation. A ship like this is safe while anchored in the harbor, but that is not what ships are for. The owner is Christ, and he most certainly desires to see the ship out on the open uh, with full sail, taking risks, relying on him even when the weather is rough and the waves are frightful. The world is full of people who are lost at sea. They are living without regard for God and unaware of the salvation available through Christ. The sailors on board the ship are responsible for the search and rescue operations as lost souls are encountered along the way, and they go about their daily lives. It is a dangerous work, to be sure. The crew can expect to endure long hours and hardship. The work takes them outside their comfort zone, but is highly rewarding. At the helm of the ship, is the one who has been given responsibility of overseeing and steering, teaching and equipping, shepherding and guiding. In addition, many other responsibilities need to be attended to 
for the ship to function properly and run smoothly. The crew needs to be taught how to do their jobs and provided with the resources they need to accomplish them. Sails need mending, supplies managed, lines spliced, food prepared, the deck cleaned, money and resources allocated, equipment maintained, rescued souls ministered to, and the sick healed. The ship should have a sense of order, a chain of command, and a spirit of teamwork and cooperation if it is to function well and survive the journey while accomplishing its mission. A hymn of praise like the sea shanties of old, shall be on their lips as they work by each other's side. As the work of rescue is accomplished, new people will be added to the ranks of the crew. They need trained. Everyone is expected to do a job for which they will need to be equipped. Some will help and serve. Some will teach and train. Some will fill positions of leadership, being placed by rank over a ministry. Some will become captains themselves. The work is hard and treacherous, and though no one will survive the journey, everyone who joins the crew will live on to tell the tale in their true home, which is not here. Until then, their camaraderie and teamwork will be illustrated by the love the captains and crew have for one another. Scripture uses the term elder, to describe the person whose job it is to man the helm of this good ship. The elders should man it well, and the people should follow them, serving wholeheartedly as they work together to achieve the great commandment and commission. Beloved, elders are part one of God's good plan to build His healthy church and I want to teach practically on the three facets of government, elders and deacons and saints, right, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but today we're going to tackle elders from 1 Peter chapter 5. And the questions are, who are elders? What do elders do? And why does it matter? Who are elders? What do they do? Why does it matter? Look at verse 1 again of 1 Peter chapter 5. So he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Uh, Peter is writing this first letter to a variety of dispersed Christians and churches who have gone out uh, among uh, that region. Uh, he's not writing to one individual church like most of the other New Testament letters are. He's just writing to a group of Christians and churches. Uh, but he does address individuals within those churches. He addresses Gentiles, reminding them that they are true Jews, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, he says. He writes to servants or slaves, bondservants, exhorting them to practice submission to the glory of God. He writes to wives and husbands, exhorting them to practice their God-given roles in the ministry of marriage. He addresses all the saints, he says, to have unity and love for one another, to be prepared for suffering and trials. And then finally, here at the end of the letter, he addresses elders in those churches, exhorting them to shepherd the flock of God. The word elder might evoke different definitions or feelings for you, depending on your upbringing and your experience of church life. 
Most Baptists in our generation would probably think that's a Presbyterian thing, right? After all, the Greek word for elder is presbyteros, right? Those are what the Presbyterians do. Um, but uh, maybe you also think of old people who have earned rank in the church. Uh, they sit around like a personnel committee. They make recommendations to the congregation. Or maybe you just think of a board of deacons. I want to ask you this morning to try your best to erase any stereotypes you might have about church leadership. What it has looked like in different per- churches you've been a part of, even what it's looked like here in days gone by. What does the Bible say? Without watering anything down, what does the Bible say? Well, first of all, there are three words used interchangeably in Scripture. They are elder, overseer, and shepherd. Elder, overseer, and shepherd. Even right here in 1 Peter 5, Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd, right? Shepherd is a verb, but vice versa, shepherds are elders, elders are shepherds. Elders are what they are, shepherding is what they do. Shepherding is the word poimen, which we get our word pastor from. Pastor is not really in the Bible. It's a verb coming from the word shepherd, to shepherd something. We also see this in two other places. First in Acts 20, verse 28. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. Uh, All of them gathered together, the elders of that church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he calls the elders overseers, right? God has made them overseers. Uh, And then Paul is clearly teaching in in 1 Timothy on what to look for in the office of elder. uh, While he's in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 3, he uses the term overseer. There's only one office described. There are not multiple. There's just one office. But the words are used interchangeably. Elder is a reference to the office itself, referring to rank and authority. Overseer is a reference to the responsibility of management, rule, oversight, supervision, Shepherd is where we get our term pastor, which means to care for, to tend to, to guide and guard, sometimes even to feed and to nourish. These are the ones that God has put at the helm of the ship. The church can only affirm these individuals. It is God alone who calls them and prepares them and sets them apart for this unique work. You should also know that every time these folks are referenced in the Bible, they are plural. That means you're going to find an S on the end of the word. You see that right there in Acts chapter 20, right? In other words, there's the implication that there were many elders in one New Testament church. Acts 14, 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Also Acts eleven twenty nine, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The only time that they were single, singularly used is if it was a reference to a, a, a person who was an elder by name, like Peter, calls himself a fellow elder, right? Uh, or in 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells us what to do if an accusation is made against an elder, um, uh, second and third John are written by the elder 
Other than that, you're going to see plural elders all throughout the New Testament. The Bible doesn't tell us how many each church should have, but it is clear that there should be many, and they should have shared authority, shared overseership, right? They share the oversight of God's house together because overseeing the household of God is a big deal. It's an incredible task. And elders are still sinners, and they will fall short of this task in various ways. But with a team of qualified, godly men holding each other accountable, sharing this sacred authority, and overseeing the church together, the church can flourish under healthy leadership. This is what the Bible tells us. Now, what about the senior pastor, the associate pastor, the youth pastor, right? Are these things okay? We've, we've done them here. Um, most of us kind of think of these as junior pastor positions. Then they get their big boy britches when they become the senior pastor, right? That's kind of how we, how we sell it in Baptist life. Um, and I don't think these positions are wrong. I think the Bible gives us flexibility to have positions like these in the local church. But I do believe that they need to have the same authority like the senior pastor. Or no authority at all. You can't have this weird gray area where somebody's authority is more than another's, but they're also elders. The Bible does make perhaps the case for a lead type elder or a lead pastor. Timothy was sent to Ephesus to lead there, remain there, put what remained into order. Paul left Apollos in Corinth, naming him as the one who was leading and pastoring. Epaphras was installed at Colossae as perhaps a lead pastor of some kind. Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I don't think these are two types of elders. I think this is a a separation of of someone who is called to a a full-time role in preaching and teaching. Uh, There are some elders who may be designated as the primary preaching or teaching pastor, but he should have the same authority as the rest of the elders in that church. If you disagree with this, I welcome you to open the Bible and prove me wrong. I know this is new and a little weird and strange, but can I tell you something? I don't want all the authority. I never have, okay? I want to give it away to other godly men who will help. Lead the ship with me. This is what God has designed. He designed it better than one dude who makes all the decisions. And I would seriously question a pride complex of any pastor who refuses to bring on elders in their congregation. The authority needs to be distributed and it needs to be distributed among the right people. Now, who are the right people? Well, the New Testament spends painstaking amounts of time trying to tell us who the right people are. Who are the qualified ones? Joey and I have taught on this several occasions. The qualifications, the characters of those elders. You can find that list in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus 1. When you go over there and you read that list, you'll find that the list is not all that impressive. It's a list that every Christian should aspire towards. Mark Dever says, Paul does not ask for men who can preach to thousands, evangelize millions, or rescue orphans from burning buildings. Rather, he lists characteristics that are enjoined on all Christians. I would say all but three. 
Elders must be male. Elders must be able to teach. Elders must not be a recent convert. I am encouraged by the ministry of our deacon, Steve Lett, who, again, is in Florida right now. But he'll tell you, when he became a deacon, he was very confused. He didn't know what his job description was. He's probably listening right now. I hope this is okay. I didn't tell him I was going to share this. Um, but he will tell you, he, he was confused. He didn't know what he was supposed to do. But when he compared the role of the elder in the Bible to the role of the deacon, he gained confidence in his description. He was not called to be a preacher, a manager, an overseer, or even one who is able to teach. He was called to be a servant, which we'll talk about more next week. But haven't we blurred the lines? And we've made it so hard on leaders because they don't know what they're responsible for. But the Bible helps us, doesn't it? It gives us a picture of what we need to have. Now, before we move on to what elders do, I want to say one last thing in regards to the office. The office of elder has been around virtually since the beginning of time. This is not new, okay? I'm not pulling this out of thin air. This has been around a long time, longer than us. The first time we ever see this word with its Hebrew equivalent is in Genesis 50. The word is zaken, which directly became presbyteros in the Greek. It means one having authority. When Joseph's father died, all the elders of Pharaoh's household came to the funeral. Pharaoh had elders. They were there. Guess who the chief elder was? Joseph, right? Over all of Pharaoh's things. And throughout Exodus, God appointed Moses to select elders in the tribe of Israel. You remember Japheth's famous words, right? Moses' father-in-law. I believe this was Pastor Rick's last sermon here. He preached on this text, uh, which I think is a good foreshadowing of what he wanted in this ministry. Japheth said, what you are doing is not good. You are not able to do this alone. Numbers 11 describes this event as God's divine revelation that Moses needed to install elders in Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, elders were men of high regard, positions of honor, reverence. They judged between various disputes, tried murder cases, sentenced people to death according to the law of God and to various other punishments. It was a serious position. We see the elders and the chief priests in Jesus' day like nincompoops, right? The Pharisees and scribes and the elders, they were seeking to kill the Messiah. And they were nincompoops in a way. But they were given by God to uphold His law and His covenant. After the cross, many of the apostles became the first elders of the Christian church. And they went from town to town planting churches and appointing elders in those individual churches. David Bannerman, a scholar on uh, um, the scriptures, (laughs) says, The office of elder continued in substance what it had been hitherto under the Jewish synagogue system in its best days, with suitable modifications and developments in accordance with the free spirit of the gospel and the providential circumstances in which the Christian congregations found themselves placed. The presumption is confirmed by all the evidence, direct and indirect, bearing upon the point of the New Testament documents which belong to the period, this period of history. The point is, elders survived the transition to the New Testament, and they gained gospel power 
They were different from the Old Testament elders, but not altogether a new office. And not only have they survived the transition from Old Testament to New Testament, they've survived all throughout church history. The earliest Baptist congregationalists of the 16th century believed and practiced eldership in their churches. The first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, his name was W.B. Johnson, he wrote a book on church life in which he strongly advocated for elders in the life of the church and a plurality of leaders. With the rise of revivalism in the 20th century, things changed. Elders were traded in for a senior pastor who preached and deacons who acted as a board of directors. This was probably due to a disproportionate practice of evangelism over discipleship. They were making converts, but they weren't reproducing leaders. The good news is that there are many sister churches still today who practice eldership. And I believe it's on its way back into the core of evangelism or evangelicalism. So maybe you're on the fence about this. I really want to be practical for you this morning. I want to talk about what elders do. You've heard me talk about the qualifications. You've heard Joey talk about the qualifications. What in the world do they do? What are they responsible for? Look at verse 2 of 1 Peter 5. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter lays out what I believe is the clearest purpose and function of elders in the church. These are men who are to shepherd the flock of God. This is incredibly real for Peter. If you remember, after Jesus rose from the dead and Peter is with him on the shore and Jesus says three times, do you love me? Right? Uh, and, and Peter says, yes. What does Jesus tell him to do? Then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now, here's Peter, a self-proclaimed elder, saying to other elders, shepherd the flock of God. Feed the sheep. And with this, he set the standard for eldership in generations to come. Shepherding is watching over a flock with care and guidance. It's also exercising oversight, as he says here which is the verb form of the word overseer. The shepherd is to direct the flock of God, to lead them. As Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 3, uh, even as he manages his own household, he is to care for the church of God. It is mightily important that the elders manage the church willingly, eagerly, and with humility. The elders who work under compulsion or for shameful gain or for the abuse of power will not give God glory. And they will not benefit their churches. They are to continually encourage one another in the work of shepherding. To keep their focus and their zeal for God's house. These are things I'm sure you've heard of, right? But I want to be practical. So here are four things that that actually means. First one, elders shepherd and oversee by praying. Elders shepherd and oversee by praying. We know when the deacon prototype began, right? Acts chapter 6. And we, we see there in this, this chapter the priority of the apostles who were taking on the first role as the church's elders. There arose a dispute. The elders were the ones who handled it. 
they made the decision to select seven men from among them to bring unity in the body. That's repeated again in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 16. The council of elders got together to talk about circumcision. Are we going to do this or not? What do y'all think, right? They were overseeing the affairs, making wise, gospel-centered decisions. But in Acts 6, we find their priorities are, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And we also see James call for the elders in the local church to uh, pray over those who are sick and to anoint them with oil. Prayer is an essential part of shepherding. This is why I try to lead us sincerely and thoughtfully in prayer on Sunday mornings, right? This is why I try to spend time each week praying for y'all because I love y'all, right? This is why both your elders and your deacons have a group text, as Joey mentioned, where we're going back and forth all week long over prayer needs in the body of Christ. Elders also shepherd by preaching and teaching. Paul teaches Timothy that being able to teach is an essential qualification for elders. Then he commands Timothy to devote devote himself to the reading and exhortation of scriptures. Now this is why elders are primarily the ones who are going to lead worship gatherings, right? They preach sermons. They, They teach through praying, as we do. They teach through the announcements. They teach through one-on-one discipleship. They teach through small groups. They teach through their various relationships in the body. This isn't just the person who's set aside for full-time ministry. All elders in the church should be well-versed in Scripture and have a right understanding of good, sound doctrine and bring it before the people. As an elder, I love it when you ask me questions about the Bible. Don't ever think that you're bothering me or put me on the spot. Now, sometimes you do put me on the spot, right? I don't have a good answer. But I love going to the text together with you. It makes me feel like I'm doing my job. It makes me feel like you know what my job is, right? I love it when you ask me Bible questions. But the job of the elder is not only to present biblical truth, but also to call you to obey it. That's why Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The primary authority of the shepherd is in the authority of what they proclaim, which is God's ever-living word. Titus would add that he must be able to not only give instruction in sound doctrine, but also to rebuke those who contradict it. Third, elders watch themselves and their families. Paul mentions in the list of qualifications, they manage their own household with dignity. They keep their children submissive. Titus says their children are faithful, or some translations say are believers. We read Acts 20 earlier. Uh, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church. Being a pastor is one of the best things you can do for your spiritual life. (laughs) Do you want to grow spiritually? Become an elder. Because I'm forced to get in the Bible and to pray every day for your sake. I have to. But as a result, I'm edified, right? My soul is breathing. I'm good. And when I'm breathing, I'm able to give you breath. My own soul is edified. Simultaneously, your souls are edified. Murray McChaney. A famous quote, he says, The greatest need of my people 
is my personal holiness. I might add to McCheney's quote, and that I love my family and put them above the present needs of the ministry. The elder's family will always take hits and sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. But they are the most important flock. If the elder does not selflessly love them and lead them well, he is not qualified to be an elder. And do you know why my own personal holiness and loving my family is so important for me and any other elder? Because Acts chapter 20, 28, when I just read, says you, you care for the church of God which Jesus bought with His own blood. This isn't my church. I am in holy territory. Jesus gave His life for you. Jesus gave His life for this body. Right? This is the good news of the gospel. Christ died for sinners at the right time. He died for the ungodly. He came to earth to live the perfect life that you and I could never live, shedding His own blood so that you could be born again into wonderful redemption, to be made alive together with Christ. Once you were slaves to sin and uh, immorality and all the passions of your flesh, now you've been made alive with Jesus. You are not who you used to be, but righteousness compels you. His own righteousness, His alien righteousness has been given to you, credited to your account, calling you to be His people. You are His people. As an elder, I have an incredible job to be holy, and to love my family and to watch what I put before you. To watch it well. And, and if you're here today and you are not bought by the blood of Christ, that means you're not part of the church. And I'm calling you to repent and believe and join the wonderful family of God, the body of Christ that Jesus bought with His own blood. Come and be purchased. Come and be redeemed. Come and leave your old life and find this new hope in Jesus. Come, come, and be bought. Last one. Elders raise up more elders. Elders raise up more elders. Titus 1, verse 5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus' job, Peter's job, Paul's job, Barnabas' job, all the other dudes, all the other elders we see in the New Testament was to reproduce themselves. In a sense, isn't this the goal of Christianity? To make disciples, who make disciples, to reproduce ourselves? And quite frankly, the church hasn't produced an elder from within itself, this church, since Joey, 2012, I believe. That's a major indication of decline. Now, you might say, well, you know, we're in a small church. We don't need, you know, a big group of elders. Um, we, we shouldn't see them popping up like popcorn, right? And that's fair. You know, that's, that's, that's a perfectly fine perspective. The elders in the local church are responsible for seeking out other potential elders, for training them, equipping them, and preparing them to shepherd God's flock. But I like how Mark Dever puts it. We should not be slower to recognize them than Christ gives them. We should not be slower to recognize them than Christ gives them. 
there are men on my radar who I am praying for that the Lord may call to eldership one day. And if and when the time comes, I want to train and equip them now. It's literally my job. This is a short list. A true description would be much more detailed, something we cannot fit in this sermon. And while this may not be what you were expecting for our first sermon in 2021, I hope you know that this really does matter. This matters a lot. Why does it matter? It matters because, first of all, I am unapologetically leading us in 2021 to be an elder-led congregational church. I believe this is what the Bible teaches. I believe the Bible gives flexibility in certain areas, but by and large, this is what a church ought to look like. Now, you're probably familiar with the congregational part, right? But what about the elder-led part? That might be new for you. We'll unpack that in the coming weeks. But what it basically means is that elders and the congregation both have authority. The elders lead at the helm of the ship. The congregation follows with sincere trust for the God who gave them their leaders. And yet simultaneously, in certain matters of dispute, doctrine, discipline, membership, it is the responsibility of the congregation as a whole to wield the keys of the kingdom. And I believe if we seek this out as a church, as God has revealed it to us in His Word, He will bless us and we'll obtain new health and vitality and we'll make disciples. One plus one can only equal two. This is what we ought to be doing. But this also matters because there is a chief shepherd and there is an overseer of our souls. His name is Jesus. And there's no greater elder who promises not to lose even one sheep. That's how good he is at watching over us. And when he appears, the faithful elders of Jesus' church will receive an unfading crown of glory. I need your help to be a faithful elder. You need to know what faithful elders are and look like in the body of Christ. And when they receive the unfading crown of glory, this speaks to the incredible labor of eldership. Their toil is not in vain. Christ will personally reward them when He comes, and it will all be worth it. But of course, elders aren't the only ones who get crowns, right? All who have loved His appearing and were not ashamed of the gospel will receive an imperishable crown that God has promised to those who love Him. <coughs> this matters because Jesus is coming back. In this short time that we have on earth, let us be motivated towards biblical faithfulness so that when He appears, we will be found as good stewards of what He gave to us. Now that you have this knowledge, what will you do with it? And not only this, but all of God's Word. What will you do with it? Think of the wonderful gift that God has given us in His Word, that we can know Him and know His plans for all creation. What are we doing with it? Will you devote yourself to truly following the Scriptures in 2021? Not just what you think it says, not what people tell you it says, not what your grandma and grandpa told you it says, but what it truly says. Will you follow it? Will you allow the Lord to write it upon your heart? 
to obey it. To see His church come alive as you live it in 2021. Let's press on to make it our own. This Christ has made us His own. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.